Hello and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey everyone, we have another great show for you here today. I have uh, with me Dr. Kristen Dumay. Did I pronounce that right? Is it Dumay? You did, yeah. All right, good. Uh, Dr. Dumay is a uh, professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She's the author of John, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. She's also a fellow Pathios columnist. She is with us here today. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Hey, before we begin, I should mention to those who are listening that I'm issuing a trigger warning for this podcast. Some of the stuff that we will be talking about uh, could be triggering for those who have encountered any kind of abuse by the church. So I just wanted to give that as a upfront warning to anybody who is watching and listening. Um, so let's begin. Kristen, hey, I, um, your book wrecked me just a little bit. I'm not sure if that's the intention, but uh, I am a huge critic of evangelicalism. Um, I read a lot. Um, and I will tell you, there was no cheering on my part as I was reading through your book. Um, I was at the, by the end, I was discouraged and I was saddened and felt a little hopeless. Um, that's not to say that I find your book incredible. So not to like down it and then say, you know, like we're advertising it here because we want people to read it because it is a great book. It is incredible. I feel like it provides proof for things that me and others have been saying for so long, but just not uh, really had the history that you bring to really show why evangelicalism is in the situation it is. So let me start off by asking you, why did you decide to write this book? I originally started to explore the topic of evangelical masculinity back in the early 2000s, actually. Uh, so I had been teaching a course on uh, U.S. history, had lectured on Teddy Roosevelt to show my students at Calvin uh, how interesting gender was in history, how ideas of masculinity change over time, how they're linked to not just religion, but to race and uh, an empire. And it was this great little lecture, I thought. And after that class, a couple of Calvin students came up to me, a couple of guys from the class and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you really have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And at that time, you know, it was this best-selling book. It would have gone to sell more than 4 million copies. Every mm -hmm. Christian guy I knew was reading it in some sort of book study. And, um, and sure enough, I opened the book and he, he opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and uh, goes on to sketch this vision of, of Christian manhood that is uh, very uh, militaristic. So every man uh, has a battle to fight. And this was in the early years of the Iraq war, actually. And so um, I was reading this literature and at the same time, I was seeing all the survey data um, coming out, showing how white evangelicals were far and away more enthusiastic proponents of the Iraq war, of preemptive war in general, of uh, torture. Uh, and, and so I just started to ask, what does one thing have to do with the other? Uh, I ended up setting the project aside for a, a long time after researching it for about a year, year and a half, in part because what I was finding was so disturbing. Uh, this was also the era of Mark Driscoll, and I could just see his popularity and his misogyny. And, 
And, and so I really wasn't sure what I was looking at, frankly, uh, was it, it felt so extreme and extremist and yet I could see how popular it was. And so I just wasn't quite sure how to figure out, is this, is this mainstream or is this really fringe? Uh, so I set it aside for a while and ended up um, pulling the research uh, out again in the fall of 2016 with uh, evangelical support for Trump and uh, really kind of that question of, of what is mainstream and what is fringe uh, had been answered for me and the rhetoric that I heard around evangelical support for Trump uh, reminded me so much of this kind of militant Christian manhood uh, that I had glimpsed uh, all those years ago. And, and that was really the moment then uh, that I decided to, to take that research and turn it into uh, the book that became Jesus and John Wayne. So um, I, I know a lot of people who have read this book and every one of them has, says the same thing. And that is that you've wrecked our childhoods. <laughs> like we can, all we do is we think of that in our college years. Uh, yeah. We think about a youth group and, and, or promise keepers or uh, college and elder giant, all of his books I read through all, I just consumed all that stuff. And now I feel grubby, <laughs> but um, uh you know, evangelicals are not uh, too usually too fond of them being critiqued. What kind of reception have uh, you received because of this book? Yeah, that's the huge surprise. I I did not anticipate that the book's biggest fans would be conservative evangelicals themselves, or former evangelicals, or just evangelicals generally. Um, I, I did not anticipate that this book would hit so many people so personally in a way that, I mean, as you said, it, it wrecked you. I, I, I've heard from literally from hundreds and hundreds of readers. I'm guessing it's probably seven or 800 now. I, I haven't even been able to, to, to collate this all. Uh, and, and they are telling me their, their, their life stories and, and how those stories map onto this book. And it's hitting them so personally, I think um, for a couple of reasons, one, you know, this is a history of evangelical popular culture. And so it's different from a lot of the histories of evangelicalism that, that have been written. This is talking about, you know, James Dobson's focus on the family radio, and it's talking about, you know, men's retreats with your churches and, and the popular literature and, and it's, it's the evangelicalism that people, ordinary evangelicals experience. So I think it, it, it really connects with people's lives, but it also is, I think, shocking, even though it's so intimately familiar on the one hand, because they lived it. Uh, so many people tell me some version of, um, like one, one man wrote, I bumped into so many of these trees, but I never saw the forest. They never understood kind of how all these pieces fit together what motivations were behind them, uh, what, what impulses were actually kind of motivating this, this ideology and were creating this, this culture that they were consuming. And so it's, it's both like intimately familiar and then also shocking to see what they participated in and in, in many cases were complicit in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually I was gonna say that next too is just uh, for our listeners, uh, a brief little, what, what I think you do here is, um, like you said, we all, all we've done in this culture is sort of, we experience one thing at a time. And, but what you, your book does is it sort of lifts the lens up so that you can see that in the context of the larger history. And I think that that pulls back the curtain and shows what, what's really working behind the scenes there. Yeah. Um, would you say that's accurate? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I worked to do in this book was not just to situate you know, any given event or publication or individual in, in terms of this larger history, but also to really work to map out the networks, the connections, the behind the scenes endorsements, the who was promoting whom, who was connected uh, through which organizations, and it um, really try to, to try to map out uh, evangelicalism itself. So a lot of scholars before, I think, have tended to treat evangelicalism as a theology, right? Mm -hmm. So you ascribe to these particular theological doctrines and you're an evangelical. I'm a cultural historian. And so I was much more interested in mapping out evangelicalism as a historical and cultural movement. So who are these people? And um, you know, how, how do you come to self-identify as an evangelical? It may be through attending a particular church. It may be through consuming a lot of Christian radio and Christian publications, and it could be both. And, and I was really interested in trying to map out that popular culture, uh, both in terms of producing, who is producing this um, and and then also in terms of consumption who 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 was consuming this and what was their experience like so here's what i think is the million dollar question um do these people know that they are complicit in this yeah. so the ones who are writing to me which is you know a subset uh seem to be very open to uh interrogating their own complicity. Because I, I've been really impressed actually with the, the responses that I've received from, again, from, from the evangelicals who are reaching out to me. Uh, because you know, many will say, you know, this is the story of my life, but I never understood. But then they don't use that, I never understood as a way of saying, you know, not on me, right? I, I'm innocent, not at all. They ask the, the next questions, which they need to be asking, which is, how could I not have understood, right? How could I? So what was being hidden from me or, and, um, you know, understanding that they were, they were gaining something from being in this system, that this was doing something for them, that it felt good to be told that, you know, you are the best Christians ever, or that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, to understand that, that there was certain power uh, that was being given to some and, and being kept from others. And you know, whiteness had to do with that. And so for white evangelicals to be confronting how much their faith tradition uh, really has been shaped by an unexamined whiteness, this, this white racial identity, even as it was just kind of uh, packaged and sold as just plain old Christianity. For many Christian men too, understanding the ways in which patriarchy has, um, you know, given them authority and uh, affirmed them, even as it has silenced many women and marginalized many women. And that's precisely the kind of reckoning that I'm sensing right now, again, from the subset who, who decides it's worth uh, writing to me and, and kind of confessing this and also just um, uh, you know, thanking me as an author for, for making this story available to them in a way that they can then use to, um, uh, to chart a different course forward. So <clears throat> this also raises a question um, uh, seeing how to, to ask this the right way. Um, is the, is, what is driving, does theology drive the behavior or is behavior driving the theology? Yeah. 
So theology and behavior or ideology, it can't be entirely um, kind of separated, honestly. But evangelicals will always say theology drives behavior, right? Theology drives your, drives your politics. Theology drives your values. Theology drives everything. Histor historically, that's not really defensible, right? That, that first of all, there is no pure theology. There is no kind of pure um, theological tradition that is evangelicalism, that is true evangelicalism. That's just not how religion works. Uh, and, and history will demonstrate that very clearly. So, um, so it's uh, at the same time, theology does matter, right? Theology enters into these debates. It matters in different ways for different people. Uh, for people in the pews, it often matters a lot less than leaders might like to think. Uh, theological literacy is actually quite low uh, across evangelicalism and evangelicals aren't alone in this. Um, you know, theology certainly matters to certain um evangelical theologians and leaders of organizations, right? They're gonna be kind of battling things out. But even then, um, I think evangelicals tend to have a, a certain almost innocence uh, or willful neglect of the ways in which their theological truths are in fact culturally informed. Uh, and so some of the examples, and this is what the book is, is kind of getting at the subtitle when, when I talk about corrupted of faith. That's actually not a historical claim as much as it's, it's a theological claim. And it's, it's me kind of speaking directly to Bible-believing evangelicals, right? Okay, you say to uphold the, uh, you uphold the authority of the scriptures. You, know, you say that theology dictates everything. Well, let's look at some of this. You know, what about uh, biblical teachings of loving your neighbor as yourself? of loving your enemies, of turning the other cheek, of, you know, we, we could go on and on, you know, those are just easily dismissed or set aside in the story that I tell um, by all sorts of leaders. What about the historical doctrine of the Trinity, uh, to take a, a kind of blaring example, uh, that certain conservative uh, theologians are playing fast and loose with in order to instead, you know, establish this, uh, the subordination of women and the eternal subordination of the son. These are the kinds of things that, that uh, I, I bring out quite clearly in this book to contest that idea that evangelicals are all about you know, scriptural authority. And that's the only thing you really have to know to understand who evangelicals are and what they believe. Uh, theology is important to them, but that theology is always shaped by cultural and political allegiances. And that's really the story I tell here. So one of the reasons that, uh, and we're going to get into Trump here in a minute. One of the reasons that I asked that is because um, it seems like there's a lot of and, I, and again, we'll get into the Trump thing in a little bit, but it seems like there's a lot of justification that takes place. And so the reason I asked that question was because I was wondering what is, why are they justifying, why do they feel the need to justify like Trump's behavior and his different things like that? And I got thinking, especially with um, in, right now, at least with the Me Too movement and stuff like that, we're getting a lot of uh people coming forward saying, look, I've been abused by my pastor or a leader in the church. Um, and it's, it's mostly women who are abused by uh, men. And so this is going to sound like a strange question, but what's evangelicals obsession with sex? So, so 
Um, like homosexuality or abortion rights, male headship, purity culture, all the sexual misconduct. Is this just a reflection of the, our culture's obsession with sex? Why? I don't know. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? That is a huge question. It's, it's not one that I have a great answer to because I've, I've, I've kind of come back to this a lot too. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll give some of my theories, but I, I, I don't have a uh, the definitive answer, honestly. Uh, I think that partly, you know, sex is, is connected certainly in 20th century evangelicalism to notions of, of purity. And I mean, that might sound so obvious because we think sexual purity, but also just this, um, this idea uh, more broadly of, um, good versus evil and we on on this side of the divide we are god's chosen people and so we are naturally pure and righteous and then the evil is is outside and so we need to maintain our purity and and sexuality is one of the ways that we do that maintaining our theological purity is another way that we do that and so these dynamics of the evil is always out there and so we need to guard ourselves with this perfect purity. I, that seems to be a, a kind of motif. Now, for me, I'm I'm a, a Christian, but I grew up in the Calvinist tradition, and so I've always been a little skeptical of these these notions of purity uh, that seem operative, including in, in the area of sexuality. Right, that you're sexually pure if you're a virgin, and then you have sex once and and you're sullied forever. Right, that doesn't really work with a kind of Calvinist understanding of human nature that we're all just totally depraved. And so, um, you know, all of our sexuality would be included in that, whether we've had sex or not. So, so that's like one direction that I take that. But then when I look at the, the history that I researched here, uh, it, it just became clear to me how important gender difference was in, um, in the evangelical kind of worldview, understanding of, of the way the world worked. Um, particularly by mid-century. Uh, so they kind of built their faith and the certainty of their faith and biblical inerrancy and all of that on top of this notion of God-ordained gender difference. And uh, that they gave that just really outsized significance. And then they built so much on top of that. So to be a man is to be a provider and a protector. And to be a woman is to be submissive and weak and very, very feminine. And that can mean also sexually, um, you know, alluring. And men are naturally sexually aggressive. And, and again, so much is being built on top that is called biblical called Christian, when in fact, it's much of it is anti-biblical. It goes against clear teachings of the scriptures, if you actually uh, start looking at this more carefully. But that gender difference then ends up being, and, and sex is very much a part of that, sexual difference, gender difference. That is the way they understand that God orders humanity and patriarchal power is the, the linchpin of that. So it's intimately linked to patriarchal power, gender difference, and this vision of sexuality. Then we take a look at something like feminism, which is advocating for equality, or even more so uh, same-sex relationships, which are going to challenge this, you know, truth, this foundational truth of this exacerbated, exaggerated gender difference, which again, they built orthodoxy on top of. And so uh, historically, you can kind of see that happen. So they're going to defend that gender difference and everything they've packaged with it as um, a non-negotiable. Um, so one of the things I did in the book is issues like abortion or LGBTQ rights 
could have been a much bigger part of the story I told. Uh, instead, I think, and I think many readers have seen this, we can now understand how those issues became such hot button issues in a particular historical moment, in part by situating them as uh, within this larger, this larger narrative where um, white Christian patriarchy is, must be upheld above everything else and gender difference is critical to that. So before I read your book, I was, I, my theory was that it was uh, the issue of abortion was really the sort of linchpin that held everything together. But I couldn't ever articulate why, especially because it goes back beyond Roe v. Wade. So it really couldn't have been abortion. And, and then you also point out the Ronald Reagan thing too, with Christians supporting him and his uh, uh, stance on that. But um, so it, it, that was a, a rude awakening and... Um, I'm thankful for it because now we, we have some un, sort of under, better understanding of what that uh, linchpin really is. Um, so why why um, this militarism? What is it with John Wayne? Like why, yeah, what is it with John Wayne? <laughs> I, I don't, like why is that the thing for them? <laughs> Yeah, so full disclosure, I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne <laughs> at all. Um, but when I when I saw, you know, when I first read Aldridge's book in the early 2000s, I, um, it, it, I was struck immediately by the fact that, again, Bible-believing Christians here, uh, the Bible wasn't really front and center in efforts to construct Christian masculinity. Instead, writers like Aldridge looked to Hollywood heroes. So they looked to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. They looked to mythical warriors or just random cowboys or soldiers. And then I started to notice that John Wayne just kept popping up way more than I thought he should. And, um, and John Wayne is the icon of American masculinity. And like, we all know this, right? That is this understanding that clearly this is, you know, this is the touchstone here. And, um, and so then I got curious and as a historian, you know, kind of look back to the past and why would John Wayne be, be such a, 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 a kind of inspiring figure. And uh, the whole story that I tell really uh, is needs to be contextualized in terms of uh, Cold War history. So as evangelicals are really emerging, this kind of neo-evangelical movement with Billy Graham, National Association of Evangelicals, this is all happening in the early Cold War context. And uh, then communism was seen as this very real threat and communists were anti-God, anti-family and anti-American. And it was a, a very real military threat. So the defense against it needed to be uh, military as well. And um, so if you read Billy Graham, or if you listen to what he was saying and other evangelicals, they are really intent on um, kind of propping up American masculinity and Christian masculinity, which are kind of one in the same. Christians are the most faithful, right? And, and so they play this critical role in, in uh, shoring up the strength of Christian America. And what's part of that is making sure that uh, Christian, that American men are strong, that they, they stay strong, that they can defend the nation, that they can defend faith, family, and nation. And, um, and they weren't all that different from a lot of Americans in the 1940s and 1950s in upholding these values. But then by the 1960s, that's when you have, right, this, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement, really starting to challenge some of these, these deeply held values. 
And, and that's when they feel like, and, and that's when everything's going wrong in Vietnam too. So American goodness, American greatness, all of that's coming into question for a lot of Americans. But that's when conservative white evangelicals really double down on these values, on traditional American masculinity, on, on this kind of white patriarchal authority, on toughness, because we need to be able to fight. And what is going wrong on those battlefields in Vietnam? It's the feminists. It's the liberals. They've emasculated our boys. And it's up to Christians to, to raise young boys into strong men. And, and this is where James Dobson came, comes in and, and, and others. And, and they're very explicit about, you need to uh, you know, teach your kids to play with guns and then use real fire, your, your boys, sorry, not your kids, your boys, because we need to have men who can defend Christian America. And um, this is what John Wayne came to symbolize on screen and off by the 1960s, by the 1970s. He was a hero of conservative American masculinity, right? He was a, he was a symbol of standing up against the hippies, standing up against the liberals, the lefties. He was this iconic, you know, kind of throwback masculinity to a time when, when all was right in the world and that needed to be um, kind of recreated, restored. Uh, and that involves strong men uh, who were willing to do what needed to be done, use violence when necessary in order to achieve order to pursue righteousness. And John Wayne became a symbol of that in American conservatism. And he ultimately became a symbol of that also for uh, conservative evangelicals. That must have been when America was good again. Yeah, yeah, right. It's uh, this, uh, you know, make America great again. This, this, uh, you know, uh, MAGA nation that uh, is only the latest iteration. And that's something that was really striking when I was re researching this book. You've got kind of previous iterations of that very similar, uh, you know, restore American greatness and mm -hmm. uh, coming over and over again. Uh, it's, it's part of this Christian nationalist discourse and uh, these rugged ideals of Christian manhood uh, really only make sense within this Christian nationalist framework. Right? This idea of Christian America and you need strong Christian men to fight to defend Christian America. So in your, uh, on, in the title of your book, um, and I'm assuming this is for a very specific reason, um, you use the word, you chose to use the word white. Yes. So can we talk for a minute about um, how race plays uh, a role in this? Yeah. So, you know, evangelicals themselves will, will often not talk about race explicitly. Again, theirs is just Christianity. Uh, their beliefs are just biblical. And so it can be hard to have conversations about race um, uh, with white evangelicals. Uh, history makes that a little easier where it can show uh, just how important uh, whiteness is, this category of whiteness in understanding uh, the tradition. And, and so I use the word white evangelical very intentionally because Again, there are different ways of defining evangelicals. And uh, a popular way that evangelical leaders um, like to use the National Association of Evangelicals will use this theological rubric, like, right? So you uh, uphold the authority of the scriptures, uh, believe in you know, conversion, crucicentrism, so placing you know, uh, the atonement of Christ at the center, and then activism. So there you have it. Um, so if you use that rubric, you can put all kinds of people into that evangelical category, right? Most global Protestants, evangelical. Most black Protestants in the United States, 
you could put into that category of evangelical. But now the problem is the vast majority of black Protestants in the United States do not identify as evangelical, right? Because they are aware that there is more to evangelicalism than just a theological rubric, much more. They're aware again of this, this social and, and cultural um, tradition. And uh, so I wanted to describe uh, this particular group, uh, people who self-identify as evangelicals. Uh, I also define evangelicalism according to um, uh, what they consume, right? It's part, it's this consumer uh, culture. And so I'm talking about the importance of Christian radio, of Christian publishing, of, um, uh, you know, these networks that I've mapped out. And those are, you know, with few exceptions, predominantly white communities, white Christian communities. Uh, so if you're looking at, you know, who attends church together, who listens to what radio programming and things like that, we are talking about, I'm talking about in this book, a predominantly white community. And, and that's really important. And then you, and then you start looking at some of their ideas. So I was just mentioning Christian nationalism, right? Christian nationalism on the surface for white evangelicals does not seem to be about race at all. They will deny that it is about race. But if you just sit for a moment with this narrative of America was once a Christian nation, right? Originally, and everything was wonderful. Great. And then at some point things uh, went wrong. And now usually that point is the 1960s. That's when things went really wrong, right? Now that only makes sense if you are a white person, right? Mm -hmm. That makes absolutely no sense. So again, like the whiteness is okay. there. The, the white racial identity is forming this, but it's only being uh, kind of packaged and sold as this is just truth. It's just Christianity. It's just Christian America. Um, and so this book is about white evangelicals. That's what this book is about. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear from a, 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 a critic uh, who accuses me of being racist by using that adjective in the title, uh, which is, you know, as a historian, it's, it's purely descriptive here. These are okay. the people I'm talking about. Let's, um, let's jump into Trump. Let's jump into Trump. Um, so your book was published in June, correct? Yes. Um, it probably was finished much uh, yes. further back in time before that. So a lot has happened yeah. since you stopped writing. Um, there was COVID um, and evangelicals followed Trump straight into the uh, rebellion and disobedience of the COVID protocols. Yeah. Um, even, so in your book, you do mention a few times, like there are a lot of evangelicals who found it strange that they were in this place with Trump that they were, they were in, yet, they reelect. They tried to reelect him, um, an astonishing, even higher than the last time in November. And then, if this does not prove your thesis, I don't know what could. And that, and that is January sixth. Yeah. And that just with the militantism and all of that stuff, that just is the nail in the coffin. Um, and it really kind of brings everything together. So, since you've written this book. Um, and you take a look at culture and all these things that have been going on, what are some other thoughts that you have uh, regarding mm -hmm. some of those events? Yeah, you're right. I finished the book uh, almost a year before it released. And so that was a long year of watching and waiting. You know, we went through Trump's impeachment. 
Uh, we had the onset of COVID and then all the anti-masking and we had the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Uh, right resurgence. Uh, we had, you know, Trump holding up that Bible after violently clearing protesters in front of the White House at St. John's Church. We had Eric Metaxas throwing a sucker punch. You know, we had a lot. Oh, and Jerry Falwell Jr.'s fall from grace. And, <laughs> right, right. There was a lot. I, I had a lot of opportunities to write yeah. op-eds. Let's put it that way. Um and so it was, it was honestly, it, it was this very strange experience to feel each time kind of affirmed as, Hey, I, I got the story right. And then horrified with each new iteration to see that I'd gotten this story, right. You know, cause when you're, when you're writing a book like this, you're putting, you, you have a lot of evidence, you have a, you're looking for patterns, you're putting the pieces together and then, and then you, then that's it. You, you kind of send it off into the world and you see how it holds up. And so the writer in me was, was very happy that it was holding up exceedingly well. Uh, but the citizen and human in me was honestly, you know, horrified over and over again. I think, uh, you know, the, uh, around the election, the, um, well, well, first, even, even last summer with, you know, even before that, right, the COVID, the, the resistance mm -hmm. to uh, uh, kind of uh, COVID measures, uh, the militancy, uh, particularly led by a you know, number of white evangelical pastors there to uh, resist, uh, you know, health recommendations, um, the resistance to uh, racial justice in the wake of, um, of the killing of George Floyd, right? All of that really was um, just deeply troubling, even if I, I could explain it. Um, each iteration was, was distressing. Uh, and then the, um, you know, unwillingness to accept the results of the election uh, was deeply troubling. One of the things that I had seen in, in my research that honestly I hadn't been expecting to see when I uh, embarked on this project was just how anti-democratic many of the impulses are within uh, evangelical, uh, white evangelical teachings, ideas of authority and submission and of God appointed authorities and, and when you need to play by the rules and when you don't need to play by the rules. Yeah, I, I was kind of startled by that. And so I thought that didn't bode well for our democratic norms and institutions. And then of course the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol was deeply disturbing. And I'm, I'm still kind of sorting that out. You know, on the one hand, the vast majority of white evangelicals were not storming the Capitol. Uh, and many people who were not white evangelicals were among those who were. Um, and at the same time, right, the symbolism, the, uh, I listened to the prayer, not, uh, there was a prayer offered on the floor of the Senate. There's also this prayer offered by um, poor boy, uh, 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 proud boys, on their way to the Capitol. Um, and if you listen to that, it sounds exactly like any prayer that could be offered in any evangelical church on any given Sunday, right? Um, yeah, I saw the posters, I saw the, the arm patches of you know, the armor of God. And I, I saw one poster was, which was Braveheart and a picture of William Wallace with a face of Donald Trump on it, right? And so, so the signs were there, the, um, the affinities were there. What I have been um, very attentive to is trying to understand where kind of the mainstream evangelicals are, are, are ending up <laughs> on these issues, right? The ones who weren't storming the Capitol, what are they thinking? Some are condemning it. Many were first saying, oh, this is Antifa, right? Because that's what Franklin Graham was saying. So that's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Then I saw a lot of, 
of course we don't condone violence, but, and then really justifying the grievances. And, and that's something that does give me pause. It is something that I, I keep my eye on. And it's something that I, I do find disturbing simply because I know the teachings that they have, um, that so many evangelicals have been immersed in for so long. Uh, it, it does give me, um, you know, cause to, um, not, not necessarily for alarm, but for caution here. What do, um, and this is, I know you're a historian and so, but I, and I'd like your opinion on this. Um, what do you think that, what, or what advice would you give evangelical leaders to sort of reorient themselves? Yeah. I do find myself in an unusual place right now as a historian. I didn't anticipate that I would be asked this question so frequently by evangelical leaders themselves. And uh, some of the advice that I give uh, with the caveat that, yes, I'm a historian, so I might not know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but I, I, one of the things that I observed through this research were just the, the, the power dynamics within evangelical organizations and institutions uh, that you know, th there is so much uh, deference required within evangelical organizations. Uh, 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 organizations and communities, right? Deference to the God-appointed authorities. And you do not question, or if you do question, you just, you, you, you stay quiet about it. Um, you don't want to disrupt the witness of the ministry of the church, right? This is rhetoric that we, we need unity. And what that ends up doing is just bolstering the, the voices of those who already wield the most power. And it can have devastating consequences in the case of, of abuse of power or sexual abuse, right? And that's the whole last chapter of the book kind of um, uh, outlines that in really disturbing ways, but I think more broadly too. Uh, and so right now, I, I know that there are many evangelicals in their churches, communities, organizations, colleges, schools, who are deeply troubled by um, racism, by uh, uh, Christian nationalism, which they see as an idolatry, who were very troubled by evangelical support for Donald Trump, right? We talk about the 81%, that leaves 19% of white evangelicals who, who are in opposition to that to, to a certain extent. Uh, but then what happens within these organizations is um, this, this kind of uh, culture of deference or then fear. Um, and if you speak out against these powers, right, you will lose your job. Many people know that. Pastors have lost their positions. Um, so many people are reaching out to me explaining their predicaments of if they speak out, this is the consequences and they are shown the door or, um, or they just willingly walk away because they know it's just a matter of time. And so when I talk to evangelical leaders, uh, really one of the, the biggest things I say is like, this is the time for courage, right? We talk about it a lot. Um, all of us, wherever we find ourselves need to speak truth now and we need to do so whatever the consequences right within our organizations uh with respect to our donors our constituents that we need to be speaking truth because for far too long far too many christians have have muzzled themselves or allowed themselves to be muzzled and what that means is that the cost could be very high for some um and uh at the same time you know that it, it just has to be done 
And then on the other side of things, uh, you know, maybe new institutions, or maybe the cost won't be so high. And maybe, you know, leadership can actually change things. I don't know. Uh, But there's just been way too many leaders squandering their authority, squandering their, uh, their, their actual leadership. So that's one of the things that I try to say when evangelical leaders ask me what they should do right now. Yeah, I think um, also with your, when you mentioned power, that really resonated with me because um, I think that it, there's some responsibility on the layperson too, to, yes. to really stop and evaluate what they're taking in, like who yes. they're listening to, who they trust, and to, st- to start taking responsibility for their actions instead of they have this herd mentality usually. Uh, yeah. They're just, they're going with what their church says or the group says. And so yeah. um, I, I don't know how you change power like that, but uh, I definitely resonate with that. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. You, your book is incredible. Uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, thank you so much, Kristen. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.